0: CHAPTER Fifteen, PART B. OF AARON'S ROD BY D. H. LAWRENCE. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER Fifteen, A RAILWAY JOURNEY. PART B. BUT, said Francis in English, none of them had any Italian yet. BUT, said Francis, turning around to Aaron, THAT WAS YOUR SEAT? And then he flung his long forefinger in the direction of the fat man's thighs. YES, said Aaron. "'And he's taken it,' cried Francis in indignation. "'And knows it, too,' said Aaron. "'But,' and Francis looked around imperiously as if to summon his bodyguard. "'But bodyguards are no longer forthcoming, and train guards are far from satisfactory. The fat man sat on with a sneer-grin, very faint but very effective, round his nose, and a solidly planted posterior. He quite enjoyed the pantomime of the young foreigners.' THE OTHER PASSENGERS SAID SOMETHING TO HIM, AND HE ANSWERED LACONIC. THEN THEY ALL HAD THE FAINT SNEER GRIN AROUND THEIR NOSES. A WOMAN IN THE CORNER GRINNED JEERINGLY STRAIGHT IN Francis's FACE. HIS CHARM FAILED ENTIRELY THIS TIME, AND AS FOR HIS COMMANDINGNESS, THAT WAS INEFFECTUAL INDEED. RAGE CAME UP IN HIM. OH, WELL, SOMETHING MUST BE DONE, HE SAID DECISIVELY. BUT DIDN'T YOU PUT SOMETHING ON THE SEAT TO RESERVE IT? "'Only that new statesman, but he's moved it.' "'The man still sat with the invisible sneer-grin on his face "'and that peculiar and immovable plant of his Italian posterior. "'Mais cette place était réservie,' said Francis, moving to the direct attack. "'The man turned aside and ignored him utterly, "'then said something to the men opposite, "'and they all began to show their teeth in a grin. "'Francis was not so easily foiled. "'He touched the man on the arm.' the man looked round threateningly as if he had been struck Set place est réserve par ce monsieur said francis with hauteur though still in an explanatory tone and pointing to aaron the italian looked him not in the eyes but between the eyes and sneered full in his face then he looked with contempt at aaron and then he said in italian that there was room for such snobs in the first class and that they had not any right to come occupying the place of honest men in the third chia chia barked the other passengers in the carriage loro possono andare prima classe prima classe said the woman in the corner in a very high voice as if talking to deaf people and pointing to aaron's luggage then along the train to the first class carriages Sepostola, said one of the men shrugging his shoulders "'There was a jeering quality in the hard insolence "'which made Francis go very red and Angus very white. "'Angus stared like a death's head behind his monocle "'with death-blue eyes. "'Oh, never mind. "'Come along to the first class. "'I'll pay the difference. "'We shall be much better altogether. "'Get the luggage down, Francis. "'It wouldn't be possible to travel with this lot, "'even if he gave up the seat. "'There's plenty of room in our carriage, "'and I'll pay the extra,' said Angus. "'He knew there was one solution.' and only one—money. But Francis bit his finger, he felt almost beside himself, and quite powerless, for he knew the guard of the train would jeer, too. It is not so easy to interfere with honest third-class Bolognesi in Bologna Station, even if they have taken another man's seat. Powerless, his brow knitted, and looking just like Mephistopheles with his high forehead and slightly arched nose, Mephistopheles in a rage. He hauled down Aaron's bag and handed it to Angus, so they transferred themselves to the first-class carriage, while the fat man and his party in the third class watched in jeering, triumphant silence, solid, planted, immovable, in static triumph. So Aaron sat with the others amid the red plush, whilst the train began its long, slow climb of the Apennines, stinking sulfurous through the tunnels innumerable. WONDERFUL THE STEEP SLOPES, THE GREAT chestnut WOODS, AND THEN THE GREAT DISTANCES GLIMPSED BETWEEN THE HEIGHTS, FIERONZOLA AWAY AND BENEATH, TERNESCU, HILLS FAR OFF, BUILT OF HEAVEN BLOOM, NOT OF EARTH, IT WAS COLD AT THE SUMMIT STATION, ICE AND SNOW IN THE AIR, FIERCE, OUR TRAVELERS SHRANK INTO THE CARRIAGE AGAIN, AND WRAPPED THEMSELVES ROUND. THEN THE TRAIN BEGAN ITS LONG SLITHER DOWNHILL. STILL THROUGH A WHOLE NECKLACE OF TUNNELS, WHICH FORTUNATELY NO LONGER STANK. SO DOWN AND DOWN, TILL THE plain APPEARS IN SIGHT ONCE MORE, THE ARNO VALLEY. BUT THEN BEGAN THE INEVITABLE HITCH THAT ALWAYS HAPPENS IN ITALIAN TRAVEL. THE TRAIN BEGAN TO HESITATE, TO FALTER TO A HALT, WHISTLING SHRILLY AS IF IN PROTEST, WHISTLING PIP-PIP-PIP IN EXPOSTULATION AS IT STOOD FORLORN AMONG THE FIELDS then stealing forward again and stealthily making pace, gathering speed till it had got up a regular spurt. Then suddenly the brakes came on with a jerk, more faltering to a halt, more whistling and pip-pip-pipping as the engine stood jingling with impatience, after which another creak and splash and another choking off. So on till they landed in Prato Station, and there they sat. A fellow passenger told them there was an hour to wait here. An hour. Something had happened up the line. "'Then I propose we make tea,' said Angus, beaming. "'Why not? Of course. Let us make tea, and I will look for water.' So Aaron and Francis went to the restaurant bar and filled the little pan at the tap. Angus got down the red picnic case of which he was so fond, and spread out the various arrangements on the floor of the coop. He soon had the spirit-lamp burning, the water heating. Francis proposed that he and Aaron should dash into Prato and see what could be bought, whilst the tea was in preparation— so off they went leaving angus like a busy old wizard manipulating his arrangements on the floor of the carriage his monocle beaming with bliss the one fat fellow passenger with a lurid striped rug over his knees watched with acute interest everybody who passed the doorway stood to contemplate the scene with pleasure officials came and studied the situation with appreciation then francis and aaron returned with a large supply of roast chestnuts piping hot and hard-dried plums, and good dried figs, and rather stale rusks. They found the water just boiling, Angus just throwing in the tea-egg, and the fellow passenger just poking his nose right in. He was so thrilled. Nothing pleased Angus so much as thus pitching camp in the midst of civilization. The scrubby newspaper packets of chestnuts, plums, figs, and rusks were spread out. Francis flew for salt to the man at the bar and came back with a little paper of rock salt. The brown tea was dispensed in the silver fitted glasses from the immortal luncheon case, and the picnic was in full swing. Angus, being in the height of his happiness, now sat on the seat cross-legged, with his feet under him, in the authentic Buddha fashion, and on his face the queer, rapt, alert look, half a smile, also somewhat Buddhistic, holding his glass of brown tea in his hand. He was as rapt and immobile as if he really were in a mystic state yet it was only his delight in the tea-party. The fellow passenger peered at the tea and said in broken French, was it good? In equally fragmentary French, Francis said, very good, and offered the fat passenger some. He, however, held up his hand in protest, as if to say not for any money would he swallow the hot watery stuff, and he pulled out a flask of wine, but a handful of chestnuts he accepted. The train conductor, ticket collector, and heavy green soldier who protected them swung open the door and stared attentively. The fellow passenger addressed himself to these newcomers, and they all began to smile good naturedly. Then the fellow passenger, he was stout and fifty and had a brilliant striped rug always over his knees, pointed out the Buddha-like position of Angus, and the three instarers smiled again and so the fellow-passenger thought he must try too, so he put aside his rug and lifted his feet from the floor and took his toes in his hands and tried to bring his legs up and his feet under him. But his knees were fat, his trousers in the direst extreme of peril, and he could no more manage it than if he had tried to swallow himself. So he desisted suddenly, rather scared, whilst the three bunched and official heads in the doorway laughed and jested at him, showing their teeth and teasing him, but on our gypsy party they turned their eyes with admiration they loved the novelty and the fun and on the thin elegant angus in his new london clothes they looked really puzzled as he sat there immobile gleaming through his monocle like some buddha going wicked perched cross-legged and ecstatic on the red velvet seat they marvelled that the lower half of him could so double up like a foot rule so they stared till they had seen enough when they suddenly said buon appetito withdrew their heads and shoulders, slammed the door, and departed. Then the train set off also, and shortly after six, arrived in Florence. It was debated what should Aaron do in Florence. The young men had engaged a room at Bertolini's hotel, on the Longarno. Bertolini's was not expensive, but Aaron knew that his friends would not long endure hotel life. However, he went along with the other two, trusting to find a cheaper place on the morrow. It was growing quite dark as they drove to the hotel, but still was light enough to show the river rustling, the Pont Vecchio, spanning its little stories across the flood on its low, heavy piers, and some sort of magic in the darkening varied houses facing on the other side of the stream. Of course they were all enchanted. I knew, said Francis, we should love it. Aaron was told he could have a little back room and pension terms for fifteen lira a day if he stayed at least fifteen days. The exchange was then at forty-five, so fifteen lira meant just six shillings and sixpence a day without extras. Extras meant wine, tea, butter, and light. It was decided he should look for something cheaper next day. By the tone of the young man, he now gathered that they would prefer it if he took himself off to a cheaper place. They wished to be on their own. Well then, said Francis, "You will be in to lunch here, won't you? Then we'll see you at lunch." It was as if both the young men had drawn in their feelers now. They were afraid of finding the new man an incubus. They wanted to wash their hands of him. Aaron's brow darkened. Perhaps it was right, your love, to dissemble, but why did you kick me downstairs? Then morning found him out early before his friends had arisen. It was sunny again. The magic of Florence at once overcame him, and he forgot the bore of limited means and hotel costs. He went straight out of the hotel door, across the road, and leaned on the river parapet. There ran the Arno. Not such a flood after all, but a green stream with shoals of pebbles in its course. Across and in the delicate shadow of the early sun stood the opposite Lugarno, the old flat houses, pink or white, or grey stone with their green shutters, some closed, some opened. It had a flowery effect, the skyline irregular against the morning light to the right the delicate trinita bridge to the left the old bridge with its little shops over the river beyond towards the sun glimpses of green sky bloomed country tuscany there was a noise and clatter of traffic boys pushing hand-barrels over the cobblestones slow bullocks stepping side by side and shouldering one another affectionately drawing a load of country produce then horses in great brilliant scarlet cloths like vivid palls slowly pulling the long narrow carts of the district and men hoo-hooing and people calling all the sharp clattering morning noise of florence oh angus do come and look oh so lovely glancing up he saw the elegant figure of francis in fine-coloured silk pyjamas perched on a small upper balcony turning away from the river towards the bedroom again his hand lifted to his lips as if to catch there his cry of delight the whole pose was classic and effective and very amusing how the italians would love it aaron slipped back across the road and walked away under the houses towards the ponte vecchio he passed the bridge and passed the uffizi watching the green hills opposite and san miniato then he noticed the over-dramatic group of statuary in the piazza mentana male and physical and melodramatic. And then the corner house. It was a big old Florentine house, with many green shutters and wide eaves. There was a notice plate by the door. Pension Nardini. He came to a full stop. He stared at the notice plate, stared at the glass door, and turning round, stared at the overpathetic dead soldier on the arm of his over-heroic pistol-firing comrade. Mentana. And the date. Aaron wondered what and where Mentana was. Then at last he summoned his energy opened the glass door and mounted the first stairs. He waited some time before anybody appeared. Then a maid-servant. Can I have a room? said Aaron. The bewildered, wild-eyed servant-maid opened a door and showed him into a heavily gilt, heavily plush drawing-room with a great deal of frantic grandeur about it. There he sat and cooled his heels for half an hour. Arrived at length a stout young lady, handsome, with big dark-blue Italian eyes, but anemic and too stout. "'Oh,' she said as she entered, not knowing what else to say. "'Good morning,' said Aaron awkwardly. "'Oh, good morning. English, yes. Oh, I'm so sorry to keep you. You know, to make you wait so long. I was upstairs, you know, with a lady. Will you sit?' "'Can I have a room?' said Aaron. "'A room. Yes, you can. What terms?' "'Terms. Oh! Why, ten francs a day, you know, pension. If you stay, how long will you stay? At least a month, I expect. A month. Oh, yes, ten francs a day. For everything? Everything, yes, everything. Coffee, bread, honey or jam in the morning, lunch at half-past twelve, tea in the drawing-room, half-past four, dinner at half-past seven, all very nice, and a warm room with the sun. Would you like to see? so aaron was led up the big rambling old house to the top floor then along a long old corridor and at last into a big bedroom with two beds and a red-tiled floor a little dreary as ever but the sun just beginning to come in and a lovely view onto the river towards the pomvecchio and at the hills with their pines and villas and verdure opposite here he would settle the signorina would send a man for his bags at half-past two in the afternoon at luncheon, Aaron found the two friends, and told them of his move. "'How very nice for you. Ten francs a day. But that is nothing. I am so pleased you found something. And when will you be moving in?' said Francis. "'At half-past two. "'Oh, so soon. Yes, just as well. But we shall see you from time to time, of course. What did you say the address was?' "'Oh, yes, just near the awful statue. Very well. We can look you up any time.' "'And you will find us here. Leave a message if we should happen not to be in.' We've got lots of engagements. End of chapter 15, part B.